Welcome to the Security in Color podcast. I'm your host, Dominique West, and each Tuesday, I will bring you the latest and greatest in cybersecurity news, tips, and career guidance. Let's see what's new for this week. What's good, Security in Color family? Happy Tuesday. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. This is officially the start of week two of the quarantine. Uh, Here in Atlanta, we have not been placed on shelter in home yet, Um, but I'm pretty sure where it's soon to come, they shut down my gym, which has devastated me because that was the only thing keeping me sane. Um, It wasn't an enormous gym, but it was um, small enough for us to practice social distancing safely, and I go super, super, super early in the morning. So um, that was helping me out, but I am still going outside in my own neighborhood, but safely and social distancing and making sure I'm staying away from people um, just because I I can't, I I can't stay inside. I will literally, I I, I will go crazy. I will (laughs) ride up the walls, climb up the walls and go crazy. So I am making sure that if I do leave my house, I'm not being reckless in it, which I hope you are as well. So how are you holding up? I was binge watching Black Lightning this past weekend. I'm currently on season two now. Yeah, I'm on season two now. I just saw that there were three seasons. So thankfully, it's short enough for me to catch up on now that I have time to. Um, And after this, I'm going to move back to uh, my anime and go back to watching Sword Art Online. I've been trying to get through this one for a while now, but I just have a short attention span and I just move from show to show. But I'm trying to go back and finish things that I've started before I start something new. And I have like a never ending list of things to watch. So tweet me, let me know, you know, what shows are you watching what are you binging? How are you staying sane during this quarantine life? Um, in today's episode, we are back to normal with the latest news. I have some really good ones for you. Um, not sure if you remember three episodes back, I gave you some stats on how Stalkerware, you know, is new and emerging up and coming. Well, there's a new application taking things to a whole new level, and I got the scoop on that. I also discussed how some cyber heroes are banding together to stop some bad guys who were trying to take advantage of a hospital during this pandemic, which obviously crosses the line in many different ways. And some good Samaritans came together to stop that and kind of uh, lend a hand to those who might be a little stressed under the pandemic and their resources. We also have how the biometric industry, honestly, they are banking. <laughs> there are some select industries that are, you know, really up and coming and will emerge stronger from this crisis. And the biometric industry is one of them. And I have the scoop on how and why and how that affects you. Uh, I also did some research and came across a really interesting video that kind of gave us the inside scoop on which IoT devices hackers love to target. I know we talk about IoT a lot. You might hear that phrase a lot, but this one will kind of give you the scoop on what hackers are actually interested in and a little bit behind their business strategy because, yes, hackers do have a business strategy to what they're doing. And then we have an introduction into what's called DevSecOps, which is D-E-V-S-E-C Ops. So yeah, let's jump into today's episode. 
Back in episode 9, I spoke about the rise in stalkerware and the danger it poses to everyone. It's a type of malicious software class that runs in the background of your phone and transmits all kinds of data. Now today, I want to take it a little bit further and get specific about an application that is being advertised as a solution to help children be safe online. But in actuality, offers aggressive functionality that can allow anyone to stalk a victim in a way that is almost impossible to detect. Now, the application is called Monitor Miner and is available to download via their website, but fortunately is not available through the Google Play or App Store. Now, the red flags by security researchers who found and tested this application were risen for Android users specifically as the application bypasses all of the security controls meant to protect user information. And it is why it is qualifying as stalkerware. Now, it allows someone to view and grab your data from Instagram, Skype, Snapchat, honestly, any of the applications. They had a list of applications on the write-up by the security researchers, and it listed practically every popular application that is out there that you would typically have on your phone, especially social media-wise. And outside of that, it even allows you to capture the unlock pattern or code of a victim's phone. Now, this is because the application is built to have permissions that you accept when you download and allow access, which means that you press yes when you get the box, when you typically download applications or you say, yes, I want this to have permission. That is that box that you're saying that this application can do whatever if you're not looking carefully at what they're asking for. Now, this uh, application that you're allowing into your phone, it will bypass something called discretionary access control, aka DAC, because you know we love <laughs> our acronyms in this industry. And that's meant to keep outsiders from gaining root access on a mobile system. So once you press allow, it now is essentially an all-powerful super user on your phone. Now, this application is a very, very scary reminder of the type of applications slipping under the radar that can create a nightmare for victims, you know, who have stalkers or abusive partners. The two scariest part about this application is one, it is persistent, meaning it has the ability to stay on your device when it acquires root access and it remounts itself um, on the system and it copies itself. It can copy, it can delete, it can, um, when you try to kind of restart it, it can make sure that it persists on your device. And the second is that it can mask itself so the victim doesn't even know it was downloaded on their phone. So one, if you don't know it's on your phone and then it's copying itself, like that's just not a good equation for anyone uh, who has this on their device. So currently India has the largest share of installation of this application, with Mexico, Germany, Saudi Arabia, and the UK rounding out the top five. Now, researchers also discovered that a Gmail account with an Indian name was stitched into the body of this application, hinting to a country of origin, but is not set in stone. And though the genre of stalker applications is still seen as rare, as I said before in the past episodes, it's still kind of upcoming. They're still trying to figure out how to classify stalkerware 
what applications or programs should be put under it. Because if you do classify something as stalkerware, that kind of automatically bans you from being used or being able to be downloaded from a particular app store like Google and Apple. So that definitely could mess with a company that is legitimate. Um, So they're definitely still trying to flush that out. But as more occurrences are popping up, you know, it's just gaining the attention of cyber professionals and kind of emphasizes the need to really understand the applications that you are pressing yes to and accepting. Um, I encourage you to do a monthly or a quarterly review of all of your devices because you know how we do like spring cleanup, spring um, just arrived and you want to clean our houses and make sure we throw away things that we don't need that we're not really using anymore. Well, I recommend you to do the same with your devices. Clean up whatever you can, you know, look at applications you aren't using. Uh, If you have extra, extra time and you're maybe uh, have extra interest, you can dive into the permissions of applications. But for the most part, I would definitely just check to make sure you know what is running. A lot of times we might download an application and we don't use it. We might use it for a couple of weeks and we might not come back to it forever, but we don't think about deleting it. We kind of just leave it there and move on. I have been, (laughs) I have definitely done that myself. So I know how easy it is to do that. So yeah, do a check every quarter. Look at what's happening on your phone, on your devices, even on your computer. Like, don't just do it on your phone. You can def- you should definitely do it on your computer as well. It seems like the latest cyber attack crossed the line and pushed a team of white hat cyber professionals to band together against the bad guys. Last week, hackers attacked the computer network of the Czech Republic's second largest hospital as it was testing people for the coronavirus. Now, some computer systems were limited, but fortunately, the hospital was able to preserve basic operation, and further details about the attack are currently not available to the public. Now, the attack was condemned by officials in various parts of the world, and one Israel-based cyber threat researcher was so fed up that he decided to step up and assemble a group of malware hunters to gather more data on the cyber attack. He was quoted saying, if anyone is sick enough to use this global crisis to conduct cyber attacks, we need to try to stop them. There are currently 70 people in this group who are still working their day jobs as cybersecurity professionals and by night are sending threat data to health organizations and other sectors who are strained by the pandemic. Now, this initial initiative has led others to follow suit and create their own groups to provide their cybersecurity skills and expertise to those who desperately need it. Now, this pandemic is bringing out the worst of attackers. As I've mentioned before uh, in the second last episode of Security in Color that, you know, there are ransomware attacks that have spiked to increase panic and kind of increase the likelihood of success of stealing your data or money. And companies are also taking notice and following suit as cybersecurity companies Coveware and Emisoft announced they will also offer free ransomware recovery services to any hospital or healthcare organization dealing with the pandemic. So as I've mentioned plenty of times, and I'm going to mention again here today, you know, as much as we like to think that we are all banding together for this pandemic so that way we can get through this and get through this safely. There are people out there who, 
you know, just don't have the same mindset and are looking to take advantage of those who are helpless. And that includes yourself, that includes organizations, that includes anyone that will help them succeed, um, help the attacker succeed in their goal of either stealing data or causing disruption, whatever it is that their goal is, um, they'll do whatever they can because typically during this time we tend to bypass a lot of security function. We tend to forget or kind of let things slide under the rug, you know, which at this current time is a little bit understandable because we're in some unprecedented times. But as you'll see in the next segment, sometimes it can definitely introduce a lot of risks. So as always, be careful when you're clicking on links, you know, definitely be careful, um, especially if you're someone, if you're working from home um, and if you have a personal computer or even your work laptop, but especially if you have a personal computer, you definitely could be introducing things not only to your environment, but to your work environment going forward. So definitely be a little bit careful as around this time, there are definitely people looking to take advantage of the fact that people are not really thinking about security. They're really thinking about keeping themselves and their loved ones safe. This pandemic is hitting all sectors and facets of our lives, and our biometric data and privacy is not exempt. Facial recognition manufacturers are making big bank as more of this technology is being adopted globally as a way to track the virus's spread. But privacy experts are rightfully worried about the deep-rooted issues around data collection, storage, user consent, and surveillance that is being brushed under the rug in the name of getting the product to market quickly to address the current pandemic. Now, though this pandemic is unprecedented, like I stated before, therefore we have no frame of reference to work with to even know an appropriate response, the result remains the same. Risks are being accepted that involve all of our data and mainly without our consent or notification. No-touch facial recognition solutions are currently peaking because of two reasons. The first is an attempt to curb the spread of the virus, as you might have seen if you uh, kind of watch the news or you look at some articles, there's this flatten the curve that um, everyone's trying to do by having everyone stay at home or to do shelter in place. And doing so, they remove contact-heavy biometric programs. So for example, the New York Police Department recently stopped all employees from using fingerprint ID as a security procedure. Now, this can help decrease the spread, but rapidly increase the need for a secure equivalent alternative. And secondly, facial recognition companies are customizing their solutions so they are better equipped to track citizens who may test positive for the coronavirus. So for example, Chinese biometric company Hanvan recently updated its technology so it can identify users even when they're wearing a mask. Now the technology connects to a temperature sensor that measures the subject's body temperature while also identifying them. And others are also pitching their own variations with some even being rolled out on a massive scale without proper security or privacy mechanisms in place. Now, while I'm sure a large majority of us are all for the advancement of technology, especially to help in times of a global crisis, I'm sure we don't want to do it at the expense of our privacy. So it will definitely be interesting to see how more technology is popping up, how is it being rolled out, and how the government or 
maybe technology industry is planning to address these privacy issues. While doing my research for this episode, I came across an interesting video from Trend Micro and CyberScoop regarding what IoT targets are favored by cybercriminals and the business strategy behind why they do what they do. Now, I wanted to quickly highlight some insights from the video because it gives us a quick insight inside look, excuse me, at the work security researchers are doing with underground criminals and what you as a consumer of IoT devices, because by now everyone pretty much has one in their home, things that you should be aware of. So, you know, you should have heard what IoT is or You might have heard it called something else, like a smart device, a smart home. You might even have several of them in your own home, you know, a smart bulb, your Alexa, your Google Homes, your smart toasters, your fridges, XYZs. You know, all of that is considered an Internet of Things device, a.k.a. IoT. Again, acronym, you know, out here, I'm going to have to start keeping track for every acronym. I was going to say you got to take a shot, but you don't got to take a shot. You could do something else. My preference to take a shot. But anyway, the IoT manufacturing sector has been under fire a lot recently due to the countless security flaws. But researchers during the RSA conference explained that attackers aren't interested so much in your, you know, your Barbie doll that can now connect to the Internet or you know, your toaster. Instead, they're very much interested in your home routers, how you are connecting all of these devices, you know, through this centralized mechanism, because that is where they make their money, where your home router, your home router, excuse me, and your webcams. So you see, once an attacker is able to get into your router, they can connect to all the other connected devices in your home network. They can even see a list of these devices, you know, that are currently connected to this network. And once they have all of those connected devices and have exploited that, they will then connect them to all of the other exploited devices that they have, creating something that is known as a botnet. Short for robotic network, a botnet is a collection of interconnected devices that have been infected by malware to allow attackers to control them. And all these connected devices will then be sold in an underground form to the highest bidder. Now, botnets can be used for a wide variety of attacks, such as DDoS attacks, something that we've talked about before, which is just basically a high-intensity attack on something like a website. You know, if we wanted to take Google, but that's a really bad example because they have good mechanism. But say if we wanted to take a very small website, like a small business owner's website down, you know, I would take all of these devices that I have exploited. So Say, for example, they have a connection of 100 different routers that within those routers, 100 different routers, each one of them have about 10 connected devices. Now they have thousands of devices that they can use, excuse me, hundreds and thousands of devices that they can use in order to attack this one small business website. Now, the reason behind it can be a wide variety of things. You know, (laughs) attackers or script kiddies, people who decide to do what they do for the cause of bad is up to them. And they can do it for com- competition reasons. Maybe they want to take their website down be- and therefore uh, divert some traffic and, and market themselves to be in a better position. 
maybe they just don't like you. They don't like that person. You know, somebody hired them to do so. Whatever the the reason behind it is, they now have this large network of devices in order to do this. And that that goes for a really pretty penny underground, especially if it's someone who has thousands of these devices. You can do so many things with botnets um, and including using them as, you know, a VPN. So your infected router will then become what's called an access node. So that way, once an attack happens, they would route through your network and the police, when they trace that attack, they'll trace them back to you instead of chasing them back to the bad guys because the bad guys are going to mask themselves, right? Now, granted, whether or not they get away, how good they are, you know, that's up in the air, but they are using you as their, you know, get out of jail free card um, because, you know, your router was exploited and taken over and used uh, on a larger scale for an attack. So now that I gave you the why behind why cyber criminals are mainly after routers, I'm sure you're asking, well, how do I stop them? How do I make sure they don't take over my network. Well, the biggest reason attackers able to easily create these botnets are because, and you guessed it, <laughs> commonly guessed passwords. You know, passwords are literally the bane of our existence. Like <laughs> they are, I can go on this, there's a tangent I can go on, but for the most part, good password hygiene isn't being practiced by the everyday person, right? And we as security professionals can speak about good password hygiene, that you should use complex passwords, you should change it every 30 to 60 days, X, Y, Z. But we want to be realistic with our users, right? We want to be realistic with people and how they're using these devices, how they're introducing these security risks and what we can do to help them, but also make sure that we're not inconvenient inconvenience in them, right? Because that's the balance that we have to have as security professionals. We don't want to inconvenience our users. We want them to be able to do what they're supposed to do as a business and as a consumer, but we just want them to do it safely. So I won't get into my tangent about passwords. It should be obsolete and what the answer issue is because I don't have all the answers, all the issues. That is just something that I am still researching and understanding myself, but I do understand that password hygiene is difficult to implement across the board for everyone, right? Either people don't know, they're not able, they or they don't know how they can properly protect them, or they're just not plainly, you know, they're just not doing it. So attackers are able to use tools that just allow you to guess a bunch of commonly used passwords against your router and boom, they're in. You know, I had to use it for my grad program. I remember we had one of our assignments, we had to use a password cracker in order to get into like one of the systems that we were kind of toying with. And it was insane how quickly, literally, you just had to upload. I uploaded, I think, about three, three different documents that had at least a thousand different username and password combinations um, on them. And you just kind of upload it not upload it, but you kind of just like reference it in your script so that way the system can understand where to find it. I'm get, I'm trying not to get too technical here, but anyway, <laughs> I had those documents that had thousands, and I mean thousands of username and password combinations, and it took less than, I want to say, 20 minutes for the program to figure out which one was the username and password and get me into the system that I need to get in. Now, that's just using a very small tool 
for a, you know, grad program that, that, that's very minuscule. That, imagine that times like a thousand. There are so many password crackers that are able to do much more than that way quicker um, in order to guess your password. And, and if you're still using default settings, it definitely won't be hard to do so. So as if you haven't heard this enough, <laughs> try to practice p- good password hygiene. And, you know, definitely at the very least, I definitely encourage everyone to change default passwords. That's one of the easiest security defenses you can use is by when you install something, um, especially uh, if you're doing it on your home network, if, if you install something or introduce something to your new network, you know, check to make sure does it have a way for you to get into the settings and understand, does it have a username and password? Is this default? Is this something you can change? How can you change it? You know, a lot of the times it's in the user manual or you can even contact support to ask them, but I would definitely be a little bit more conscious of making sure that you keep your router and your home network safe and secure and updated um, when the updates do come around and to make sure that everything is now on default password settings. Our last topic for this episode is around a recent report released by Palo Alto Network's research team and a topic I have been dealing with in my own line of work, and that is the need for a more DevSecOps mindset when it comes to deploying in the cloud. Now, FYI, this might get a little technical, but is important information for those currently in the industry or those looking to get into cloud security. So now typically when developers deploy applications in data centers, aka on-premise, they have a pretty you know, secure layer of security to keep that data center secure. But as we have seen with the hundreds of headlines last year, having the secure layer in the cloud is proving to be a bit more difficult. And the main reason is because of poor cloud configuration choices, leaving sensitive data exposed. Now, it's important that teams start to shift from a DevOps mindset, which is developer and operations, to what's now being called DevSecOps, which is developer security operations. Typically, you just have developer and operations team working together when you are building and deploying applications, and including the security team is typically an afterthought or towards the end. And it's time that organizations understand that the security team should be brought in at the beginning of the process or very, very early on in the process, hence the second in the middle of DevSecOps. Otherwise, they can look to be added to the growing list of misconfigurations in data breach headlines. The report aforementioned went into uh, went a step beyond an understanding how breaches are occurring in the cloud. We've seen plenty of reports, plenty of headlines, plenty of articles explaining how many breaches are happening. We understand that breaches are happening. And now, you know, they went and asked, why are they happening and how are they happening? Like, what is being done wrong that is allowing these attackers to come into the cloud so often, especially because, you know, the cloud has been treated as a really secure program, a platform, you know, what is happening? What is the human error that is occurring and how can we address that? Now, as quoted by the researcher at Palo Alto, a couple of takeaways that they found were that 
43% of the data stored in databases um, that are being deployed in a public cloud are not encrypted. So when developers set them up, they're leaving that data unencrypted, which exposes them to potential risks. And I'm sure these developers are thinking, well, no one's going to get access to my, you know, my database. I'm in the cloud. I don't have to worry about it. But as we've seen time and time and again, this just doesn't turn out to be the case. So encrypting data when it's at rest in your database is just as important as encrypting data while it's in transit. And the second issue occurring is around logging or the lack thereof, I should say. So when you set up or start to set up a resource in a cloud, so you can think of like an S3 bucket if you're working in AWS or a virtual machine, a bucket across the board, XYZ, you can turn logging on for this resource. And doing so allows a security team to understand if anyone, you know, has access to this resource. Did they make some changes? You know, how can I keep track and audit what is happening with my resources in my cloud environment? And as an example, to kind of like translate this, if you have a hotel you know, you're not going to just let anyone access rooms without having the ability to track who's staying there or who's going in and out. So the the same concept applies. You want to track who is using your resources and what changes have been made. And a major part of these issues come from awareness and understanding that what you typically did on-premise won't be the same in cloud. I kind of emphasized this a lot before when I spoke recently with my um, my professor of my grad program. I spoke to a couple of students who are still there, and I was saying like a really big important factor in this is having a mindset shift when you're working in the cloud. Like I agree and a big proponent that security is security no matter where you're deploying it, but big part of security is understanding what you're securing and how. Like one, not knowing what you're securing is key. Like that's fundamental. That's That should be your number one. And two is how do I secure this data? Like once you've identified the sensitive data, once you have identified what you are going to protect, then you're like, how do I protect it? Do I do it with a combination of, you know, procedures and policies, and then couple that with technology that I put in place to do so. Like there's a bunch of things going in, but you have to shift your mindset of on-prem because in the cloud, there's just so many different resources, so many interconnected things. Um, And it's definitely important. The most important of that is making sure that the security team is included early on in the development lifecycle process. Now, I can go on and on about this topic, um, and I might later, if you guys are really interested in learning more about DevSecOps and about security and a lot about different cloud stuff, um, I don't mind. I've been thinking about doing separate segments on that. Um, Anyway, to be able to deep dive a little bit more for those who are interested. But, you know, I just wanted to give you a little introduction (laughs) into the facets of cloud security and DevSecOps. So thank you for listening to another episode of Security in Color. And if you like what you hear, please hit the five-star rating in Apple Podcasts and leave us a comment or send me an email at dominique at securityincolor.com. That's D-O-M-I-N. 
N-I-Q-U-E. Sometimes people forget the second I or they're not too sure how to spell it, um, but that's D-O-M-I-N-I-Q-U-E at securityandcolor.com. What's your feedback or suggestions for future content? What you like to hear? I have a listener survey that I always link in the episode box so that way people can let me know, you know, what you're interested in so that I know what to gear these future episodes and especially when I'm thinking about shifting how um, whether or not that's I add another episode in order to do a little bit more deep dive technical topics or do I just kind of leave that on my website. I'm definitely interested in how you guys like to receive your information. Are you a person who likes to read or do you want to hear it, you know, on the go, especially now that we all have a little bit more time? Let me know that you can fill out a survey. It really takes about two minutes. Um, and that'll be in the description box. Or again, you can email me. So thank you so much for tuning in and I will see you next week. Thanks for listening to another episode. Please consider leaving a rating or comment in Apple Podcasts. And for more information, go to our website at www.securityandcolor.com. Be sure to engage with me on social media or write me to be a part of future episodes. Take care.